Welcome to episode 227 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, Jesse. How are you? Hey, brother. So as some can already hear, our greetings are a little bit more subdued because on this episode, we have a somber topic. And we're going to be talking about Ravi Zacharias, his ministry, and what's basically unfolded in these last days. And we've got a lot to say about that, and it's a heavy topic. But before we get to all of that conversation, I know there was something in particular that we wanted to clarify from last week's episode. We've been working through this book, Reset. And so we'll be returning to that shortly, but we covered a chapter last week that involves everything about exercise. And there's something we wanted to clarify in response to that episode. Yeah. So in the midst of the episode, um, I had mentioned the recent health uh, crisis that um, evangelist, pastor, professor, um, he has many hats, uh, Vody Bauckham is experiencing. And I, I, I got uh, some respectful messages from a few people that just said, hey, you know, he might not have been the best example for you to use. And the reason is that uh, Vody Balcom actually is a pretty um, active athlete. He practices mixed martial arts. Um, specifically, he says he started doing that in 2012 specifically to help protect against heart disease. So my, my purpose in bringing up um, Vody on one level, I, I didn't know that. So I want to be transparent with that. I didn't, I didn't know that about him. Um, and, and so it was helpful for people to bring that up to me. My purpose was not... Uh, to bring him up as an example of someone who did not exercise and therefore, you know, is is somehow culpable for the health uh, condition that he has. It was really more along the lines of here's an example of someone who uh, in, in various ways is suffering significant health ailments and almost as like a, a cautionary tale that we really need to be tuned in and alert and astute to what our bodies are telling us. And uh, this this is not in any way to say or place blame on Vody Balcom for what is going on in his life. Uh, I, don't, I don't roll that way. But one thing that has been a subject of conversation publicly is that Vody doesn't have any health insurance. And so it's, it's almost a sure thing that he was not getting regular medical checkups. Um, there was almost certainly a hesitancy to seek medical attention. We started experiencing symptoms, which he did not ignore. He more or less uh, misattributed them to other, other things going on. Um, but he, he didn't seek medical attention right away. And so the, the purpose of bringing him up was to underscore the importance of, of taking care of our bodies. I have not read the entire book that we're going through yet. There may be a chapter later on that is about, you know, seeking medical attention and, and proper, you know, routine care and things like that. I don't think there is looking at the other titles. I don't think there is. So I think that element of taking care of our bodies sort of falls into this chapter, which was admittedly about exercising and moving and those kinds of things. But the the broader point that was being made is, is not so much we have to exercise. It was more we need to care for our bodies and exercise as one of the things he pointed out was primarily something that uh, pastors in particular and Christian men in general tend to ignore um, was one of the things that we were going. So I wanted to clarify that in light of what we said about being honest and being able to own up to our faults. Um, I wasn't as clear as I could have been. And some of that was that I just I didn't know the circumstances as much as I ought to have. Um, but I still think that the point stands. So, you know, if, if you have any major concerns concerns with that, or you want to add more to the conversation, feel free to email me, Tony at reformbrotherhood.com or info at reformbrotherhood.com. 
um, or hit us up on Twitter. But um, I, I think the point stands that we have to be constantly aware of and seeking ways to care for our bodies. I personally think that that means having medical, you know, regular medical checkups and seeking medical attention. Um, And if anything, you know, not to say that this could have been prevented. I I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I don't know anything about what's going on with Vody's health other than what they've told us. Um, But regular medical checkups often can help us to spot these kinds of things before they become the catastrophic life changing or life ending kinds of things um, that Vody is, is going through. So, Pray for Vody. Hopefully that he is able to get the medical attention he needs and is able to come out of this on the other side of it. Um, But like I said, I think the point stands. I'm so grateful for our listeners who really actually joined in the conversation. It's not just a matter of them maybe not letting us get away with something, but I just love that they're willing to push back a little bit and say, in this instance, we're trying to understand what you're saying here. And yet maybe the example is not right exactly on the money. But I understand why you brought him up. And I think part of the reason, and I want to just add to your clarification, I think part of the reason why you brought him up, if I'm not mistaken, is because when Vody himself was describing what he was going under with respect to all of his physical ailments, he himself acknowledged the role that stress and basically overworking had played in the part of driving him to that current place. And it, it seemed that even he was acknowledging in some small way that by his example, we all need to be listening to our bodies, honestly. I mean, that just sounds like such mundane and pedestrian advice. But even what David Murray, I think, is getting after in his book is that it's exactly what we ought to be doing. That again, this contingency that we have under God as beings that are finite is something that's so important that it demands us to focus our attention on being finite and listening to our physical ailments and being prepared to have some time to engage and assess what we're doing physically, whether we're just working too hard. And again, this idea we talked about of how it's so easy for us to basically undo or override all of the good work we're doing by trying to do too much. And so I think he was acknowledging some of that. And I think that's what you were kind of trying to draw us into is here's a contemporary example of somebody who's acknowledging this very thing. Right. And, and, you know, David Murray himself is the, the example he brings forward in the opening chapters. And it's not as though David Murray never exercised. I mean, he acknowledges that he thought the pain in his legs that was actually blood clots that he actually thought it was just a strain from doing Taekwondo. So, so the, the point stands, uh, and you're right. The reason that I brought Vodi, Vodi Balkum up is because it was current events is the big thing. It was something that was in the front of all of our minds because it was happening in real time, but it really was because he was also saying that he, he didn't ignore the signs, but he, he sort of wrote them off. I think when you, when you read his statement, um, you know, he says he was experiencing shortness of breath and he was experiencing some other kinds of symptoms that he attributed to heavy luggage and restrictive masks during travel. Well, Vody's a big guy. He's he's an athlete. So so, you know, you would think he'd be able to notice the difference between one trip where he has no issues and another one he does. So I'm not I'm not trying to bash on Vody. I, I don't want anyone to hear it that way. But I think there are times, especially as men where we ignore our own medical needs because we, we think oh, I'm just going to push through it. I'm just going to, it's going to be fine. And I think, you know, you're right. Vody is acknowledging that uh, at least in some sense, we need to pay better attention to what our bodies are telling us, right? They are not finely tuned machines. You know, they're, they're not like 
they're not machines the way that we think of machines, but they are, you know, there are certain things like pain signals and, and discomfort signals that God has built into our bodies to signal to us that something is wrong and to seek help. So that, I don't think we need to go any further than that, but I did want to make sure that that clarification was out there uh, since a couple of people had asked about it. Yeah, that's great. Let me draw like one other example to wrap this up, hopefully tied up in a tight bow. And that is, I'm just going to go back to that show, Parks and Recreation, by way of my example here and refer people, if they're familiar with that show, to a character named Chris Traeger, who's kind of set up as this kind of like really fit, yeah. ultra man who's tough. And I always, I actually think about him a lot with respect to this conversation because there's an episode in that series where, and I'm not necessarily condoning that series, I'm just trying to give an example by way of this character, where the flu is going through the town. And because he is so fit and he says like, I have like, 5% body fat. He's like, my body's a microchip and a grain of sand gets in it. It destroys the whole thing. And I think that's really what we're like, honestly. Right. We, yeah. we don't like to admit that, but that we're so susceptible. Again, I've said this so many times before in the show, this idea that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Part of that fearfulness, I think, is the fact that something could befall us and it's something we can't even see. So we are in many ways a miraculously created thing. And yet at the same time, we are just this little microchip and a grain of sand gets in there and causes the whole thing to malfunction, to fall apart. So it's almost better that we just admit that before God, and then we start to actually live our lives like that truth right. does matter. Yep. And I, I think that's all we're after here. Yep, exactly. So let, let's um, let's transition into our topic. As we mentioned, this is a this is a somber episode. Um, th- this is not something that I think people uh, who are talking about it are enjoying talking about. Um, but one of the principles that has sort of organically developed as Jesse and I have, you know, created this podcast and started to try to build this community is the fact that conversations have to happen even when they're difficult and unpleasant conversations. And one of the things that is dominating conversations all across, uh, really not just Reformed Christianity, if anything, within Reformed Christianity, maybe the conversations are not as acute because Ravi was not a huge figure in the Reformed world. You know, he was kind of just there. But the, the conversation about Ravi Zacharias and what happened in his life and this recent report, and we don't need to go into all of the details, but for those who may have not heard, um, Ravi Zacharias is a or was a, a world-famous international apologist. He had an extremely large ministry um, with, with staff and teaching associates and faculty all across the world, really. Um, and, and, you know, there were some allegations uh, initially regarding his academic uh, credentials and standing. Uh, and then those were not necessarily brushed off, but I think people kind of looked at him like, well, yeah, I mean, so maybe he doesn't have an earned doctorate, but like, look at how smart he actually is. Like that, in, in some senses, that's just a title. I don't want to excuse that. I'm not saying that. Uh, and then in 2017, there were some allegations um, from a woman who had said that Ravi had essentially um, groomed her into a sort of sexual abuse situation, uh, at which point... Uh, RZIM released some strong statements. Uh, Ravi released some, I think, even stronger statements um, and actually countersued this woman. Uh, and that all ended with a private settlement and a non-disclosure agreement. Um, and, and then after Ravi died, um, some of these allegations continued to come out. And um, RZIM, to their credit, uh, um, commissioned a private investigation or independent investigation and I, th- I think to say that the results of that investigation are 
grave and devastating uh, to those who followed his ministry and were influenced by him is probably like the understatement of the year. Because the the um, statement, which is publicly available, I, I, like I said, I don't, we want to keep our show PG-13, so we're not going to go into too many of those details, but the, the allegations that were then confirmed um, and, and the report itself kind of says like, this is probably just the surface of what actually happened in terms of, of the reality of the scope of this thing. Um, you know, those things were were evil and wicked, I think, to say the least. And so we, we wanted to talk about this because this is something that affects us all uh, in one form or another. Um, Ravi's footprint in the world was big enough that it's probably not unlikely for someone at your work to have heard about this, um, even if they're not a Christian. Um, the Reformed world is pretty small, and, and Reformed people in general don't have much of an impact in the world, for better or worse. Uh, but Ravi Zacharias is not really like that. So I think it's incumbent on us to have a conversation about this and to sort of reflect on this. And there are some other reasons, um, you know, why this show particularly, why we, we probably need to address some of this ourselves as well. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, thank you. You just gave me a really great segue into what I, what I was going to say. So I, a couple of things before we start. One is, I think, it, just a matter of fair disclosure, and that is those who listen to us speak for some time will remember that back in May of last year, when Ravi Zacharias died, that as part of my affirmation, I affirmed his ministry. And the reason for me doing that, this isn't a matter of me trying to defend that particular affirmation, I still stand by it, especially with what we knew at the time, is a matter of the fact that for me, even though I, I grew up uh, reformed and my theology continues to be reformed, that for whatever reason I decided many years ago that I was going to read everything Ravi had written. And so I have at least all the stuff that's of course like in print is actual published work. There, I'm sure there's stuff online and blog posts and stuff like that, that I have not read, but everything from the more famous stuff can man live without God to his more esoteric stuff, like the Lotus and the cross, which were fictional conversations between Jesus and Buddha. And the reason for me doing that was one, because I felt that sometimes in the reformed tradition, we're not as widely read as we would like yeah. ourselves to be or present ourselves to be. And the second reason is because I always found that Ravi's writings forced me to think, it was not that I always agreed with his theological perspective. In fact, in many ways, I didn't. There was, though, something in his approach that I found was very important for Christians to think about and to undertake. So he wasn't a case study, and yet it wasn't just a matter of, well, here's the theologian that I admire in the same way as some others. But for me, third to the Bible and the Puritans writ large, I don't think I've read any more words written than Ravi Zacharias. And so... Uh, the second thing I want to be clear about is that when you and I talk about this, you and I are not positioning ourselves as victims in this. Right. I think there are Christians who have strong reactions to this because they now find that they cannot respect the man that they once definitely respected. And what we're saying here is that actually the report that has been provided to everyone, the findings in it of are such a grave and dramatic nature that the magnitude of what we're talking about is so great that we're not talking about just a sexual abuse on some kind of ad hoc level, but there's actually a systemic nature right. of this abuse. And there was not just a mishandling of things, but it seems there was the purposeful leveraging of spiritual status to actually bring about and commit very violent uh, acts of abuse. Right. And we as Christians cannot stand for that. We should not stand for it. It doesn't matter if it's someone in our midst who does that. So I want to say clearly that every conversation at some point on this topic should, I hope, very quickly pivot 
to being in prayer and concern for those who are the ones that are actual victims of what's happened under the leadership of Ravi. That at the end of the day, our goal in this conversation is not to be armchair judgmentalists, where we take a look at everything that he's done and try to bring some kind of like self-moralizing or self-aggrandizement, but that what we're really after here is questions like, why did God allow this to happen? What do we do in situations like this? How do we process this with those who are not believers? And I think it's fair to start with with a quote from actually RZIM, which is the foundation or the ministry that Ravi Zacharias himself founded. There's lots that you can read, and I would encourage everybody who's listening to our voices to, in fact, do that on their own. I want to point to basically the last paragraph of a very long open letter that I think is helpful that the board of RZIM issued. They say this, and I quote, The findings of this investigation have convinced us more than ever of the necessity and sufficiency of the gospel. No one is without the need for a savior. Sin resides in the heart of every human being. Jesus is the only person who is exactly who he says he is and the only savior worthy of our ultimate trust and worship. Jesus is fully committed to truth and to justice, and he unqualifiedly stands with victims, end quote. So I think let's get into some of what all this means, how we process this, but let's start there acknowledging that our prayers, our support, really our hearts should be inclined toward those who are abused here. And that we do, as you and I think have made the statement many times before, we need to stand up against this kind of thing, especially when it happens in God's own family and in his church. Yeah. You know, I think it's it's fair for Christians who have been influenced by um, Rabbi Zacharias uh, as, a, as a figure and then sort of tangentially by his ministry and RZIM and, and the other things that he was involved in, um, it's fair for us to say we have been hurt by this, right? Be- because I think we all have. Um, you know, it, it's funny. Um, I, I mentioned, like, I, I've never had much of an affinity for Ravi's ministry. Like, he just, I, I heard him, I listened to his podcast occasionally. But it's funny because the very first date that I took my wife on was to a Ravi Zacharias lecture at Gordon-Conwell Seminary. And it's it's funny that the timing of this is poignant because I one of the very first gifts that I gave her um, was I took the the bulletin from that chapel service and uh, we, I took her out to uh, a movie after that. And so I took the ticket stubs from the movie and I made this framed memento of our first date. And and I've been meaning to get around because the frame has been damaged in various moves we've had. I've been meaning to get around to uh, repairing that and putting it into a new frame. And now I'm sort of faced with this reality that, man, do I really want to have this this thing with his name on it in my house? You know, if if someday someone comes in and goes, why why do you have uh, this this framed bulletin from someone who is was a sexual predator and in many many regards probably involved in human sexual trafficking? Um, you know, maybe maybe he wouldn't have thought of it in that way, but it seems like that's the reality of what was going on in some ways. So, so this is a real, a real fact that Christians across the board have to grapple with. And it's not just Ravi. I think, you know, everybody can think of some high profile Christian in the last five or 10 years that uh, had some sort of scandalous fall that they were impacted by. So it's important for us to recognize that this isn't, it's Ravi is not the only person who proclaimed the name of Christ who fell into grave sin um, or even 
or even if we want to frame this in the most critical light, is not the only hypocrite who's ever claimed the name of Christ, right? But that is not the same as saying that we are victims of Ravi. And I, I've heard Christians say this about Ravi. I've heard them say this about Mark Driscoll, about Tulin Tavidian. There are real victims. And I want to make sure that we we make that distinction because I, I'm hurt by what happened. I, I think the testimony of the church writ large is hurt. I know you and I had a, a conversation, you know, right after this happened, just sort of like starting to try to process, like, what do we even do with this stuff? But that is not the same as being victimized. And so I think you're absolutely right that that distinction needs to be made first and foremost in any of these conversations, that we need to recognize that there are, there are real people who are really abused. And, and the other thing I think we need to recognize as we have this conversation, some of those people conceivably might hear our voice or read our words or, or somehow be, be involved with what we're saying without us knowing it. And so it's important when we talk about situations like this to, to keep that in mind that we're not, even though we don't know names, you know, I mean, there are a couple of people who, who were named in the investigation who came forward and, and put their name on it. For the most part, these are sources that have not been disclosed who they are. And so even though they haven't been named, we should not think of them or speak about them as sort of nameless, faceless people, because they're not. These are real people. In very real senses, some of their lives were utterly destroyed by not only the initial abuse and sin that took place, but the the cover-up and the fallout of what happened and is still happening. Um, I think it, we can't underestimate that. And, and I think the other thing, and, and maybe kind of to transition into a different part of this conversation, is we have to we have to understand certain categories about what it means to even be a Christian and to think about how do we as, as Christians, how do we look around and understand who else is a Christian? Because I think that the, one of the biggest challenges and struggles, and I know personally, one of the biggest struggles that I've come out of this with is this figure that during his life, almost nobody would have had any reason to question his sincerity and his commitment to Jesus. Almost nobody, um, other than the people, obviously, who were involved in, in being abused, who, who would know that the depravity that was being expressed. The rest of us who didn't have visibility to that, um, we would have no reason to question that. And I think that that speaks to like, you know, you, you made that affirmation and and at the time, operating on the knowledge that we had, I, I also don't think that we need to go back and apologize for stuff like that. I don't think there's any reason for us to say, man, I shouldn't have said that because we, we didn't know at the time. And so what we're doing now is we're saying, had I known at the time what it was that was going on and who he who he really was, what he really was doing, I would not have made that affirmation. But that doesn't change the fact that at the time with the information we had. And so for me, one of the biggest struggles coming out of this is how do we even think about Ravi Zacharias in reference to his status as a Christian? You know, and I, I've struggled with why is this even a difficult thing for me? Why, why is this even a challenge for me to wrestle through? Because I think had this stuff come out and been um, exposed during his life, I actually feel like it would have been a no-brainer. We would have looked at it and went, yeah, this person is definitely not a follower of Jesus. This person is definitely not a regenerate, saved Christian who's going to engage willfully in this kind of systemic, decades-long, predatory, conspiratorial abuse and sin. We would never even question that. He would have been excommunicated. We all would have been like, yep, that was the right decision. Nobody would have even batted an eye at that decision. But there's something about him being dead 
that makes it difficult for me to make that same statement and assessment. And I'll, I'll be honest, I really don't actually know exactly what that is. The closest I can think of is that we don't have a way to know what happened in his final moments. He very easily could have, um, I shouldn't say easily, he could have truly genuinely repented and put his trust in Christ. Um, and we would never know that what goes on in a person's heart and mind and soul in their dying moments. We don't know that. And so I think for me, it makes it difficult to make that kind of statement because we don't have access to that information. So I don't know. It's just been a hard thing for me to wrestle through. You're right. I mean, this is a really challenging thing. Actually, it's probably better to say it's like a really difficult thing. It's a hard thing because Mm -hmm. it's uncomfortable and there's so much that has been written already. And a lot of it is quite good, to be honest. Even those who are from the outside that are really critiquing this, they're either critiquing the leadership of his organization that he founded, they're critiquing the denomination of the church that he was part of, which does at least provide some vetting that was present in 2017 and created or issued statements regarding the nature of their own inquiry and how, what was the depth of that inquiry. But I want to, I have actually two quotes that I want to give as part of our discussion. I'll give one now and and probably save one later when it's a little bit more relevant to what we're talking about. The first is in Ravi's words himself. And this is what I sent to you when all of this really came out. But I want to put it out there because this is exactly, in other words, if people are saying, well, what's the big deal here? I don't understand why this is so challenging and difficult. Yes, he was a leader, but we know all men fall. Right. And I want to give you some perspective about how he was intertwining what he was saying in his ministry, his presentation of the gospel with so much of who he was himself right? and how this was common for him in both his expression, whether he was answering a question or whether he was doing this in writing. So I want to quote from his book called The Logic of God, which is actually actually a recent publication, but uh, it's not very lengthy, but it's just a couple of paragraphs. So here it is. Quote, and this is Ravi speaking about his experience. I quote, after lecturing at a major American university, I was driven to the airport by the organizer of the event. I was quite jolted by what he told me. He said, my wife brought our neighbor last night. She's a medical doctor who had not been to anything like this before. On their way home, my wife asked her what she thought of it all. He paused and then continued. Do you know what she said? Rather reluctantly, I shook my head. She said, that was a very powerful evening. The arguments were very persuasive. I wonder what he is like in his personal life. The answers were intellectually and existentially satisfying, but she still needed to know, did they really make a difference in the life of the one proclaiming them? In other words, the message is seen before it is heard. For any skeptic, the answers to questions are not enough. He or she looks deeper to the visible transformation of the one offering them. End yeah. quote. So it's stuff like this that is exactly what you're pointing out. It's, it's not just that we have somebody that's pre- pre- preaching the gospel and presenting the gospel, let's say in its own kind of microcosm or separated from their own persona. Here is somebody that constantly tied that message and basically said the way to the appropriate apologetic is to look not only at the message, but to see that the message has powerfully impacted and changed the person in their most private place. And what's yeah. different for me than like, let's say Tulian Travidian is what I find so strange about Ravi in hindsight here is that it wasn't like Tulian where Tulian almost sets you up for what he fell into. Yeah. This idea of like, you're free to fail, like understand that the grace of God is so great that if you just go out and try and you make mistake after mistake after mistake, that's okay. What Ravi's actually emphasizing here is that no, the person 
of God is the person who's been changed in the inner being by God. Right. And that that is so important that it could fundamentally impact the way in which somebody understands the gospel. And so that's why this is so difficult to understand because I've read some people who I think have rightly said, who is the real Ravi? Is it the one that we read about in the report or is it the one that I just read to you from the logic of God? Yeah. Yeah. I want to read something from the scriptures here and, and I want to give a, a hat tip to R. Scott Clark on this. He, um, in his most recent episode in this series, he's doing on first Peter, uh, and eschatology. He, he made these, a lot of these points that I'm about to make. And so this is from, uh, first Peter three and, uh, chapter, uh, sorry, chapter three and starting in verse 13. And this is going to be very familiar to all of our audience, but I want to approach it from a slightly different angle because I think it, it actually ties directly into that quote that you just read more so than, than most people. And, and more so than I think Ravi would actually understand. It says here, verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so the reason I bring this up, right, this is often called the apologetic mandate. And primarily how this passage gets unpacked, especially by those who are engaged in some sort of formal ministry of apologetics, and there's not anything intrinsically wrong with this interpretation, I think it's an aspect of what's going on, is that when it says, um, always be prepared to make a defense, uh, the, the word uh, make a defense in Greek is apologizomai, right? It, it's the word apology. And in some forms of, in some references in classical Greek, it had to do with like a reasoned defense. It was like a legal argument that you make before the courts. But it's not always that. And so in, in, other, where, in other translations, it might simply be said, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. And so, but that's always constrained here by the next clause. It's by doing it with a good conscience and and good conduct so that if someone brings a charge against you, it's slanderous and ridiculous. That that's right. the point of what he's saying. And ultimately the the good witness, the good conscience is actually the apologetic itself is a lot of what Peter or what Peter is getting at here. And I would encourage everyone to go listen to this last episode uh, that came out of um, Scott Clark, because he, he goes into depth in the language and everything like that, that we don't have time for. But he makes the point that the, the righteousness of Christ that you have within you, right, translates into outward civic righteousness before those who see you. And that outward change, that outward civic righteousness is the apologetic. It's it's that people who recognize and want to reward good, they see that and they do that. People who want to punish good, they see that and they punish the good that you're doing, the good that you are exhibiting. And it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be Christ's will than for doing evil, right? So, so the reason I bring this up is because we have to look at the life of Ravi Zacharias, and, and what, what I think a lot of people, right, there, there's, anytime you break the world into two simple camps, you're, you're missing all of those people in the middle, but, but it's a useful heuristic. And so there are the people who are looking at it and they're saying more or less, 
look at what he said, right? He couldn't have, he couldn't have not believed that. So of course he died as a Christian. Look at all the things he said. And then there are the people who are looking at it saying, well, look at what he did. And this gets at the heart of the question that you're asking is who's the real Ravi Zacharias? Well, I, th- I think, I think that Peter would say the real, Zac- the real Ravi Zacharias is not the one who spoke outwardly good things, but the one who did, did, did evil things in secret. That's the real Ravi Zacharias. And that's, that's what constrains and defines his apologetic, right? Because now that this has come out, there are people um, on, I was on this uh, podcast called Today's Faith Matters. I mentioned he did an interview with uh, an atheist guy who actually was sort of the guy who broke the story about Ravi's kind of credential controversies. And he continued to pursue investigating Ravi all the way through this and up into now what, what has come out. And he he made the statement very early on that he was actually quite impressed with Ravi's arguments and that it was actually starting to convince him that the truths of Christianity were real until he found out that Ravi was lying about his credentials. Or if we want to be more charitable, was not being fully honest and fully transparent about his credentials or lack thereof. Right. So so the the apologetic that we use outwardly, the reasoned defense that we give is important. It's important to be able to verbally explain why you have hope in Christ and to be able to defend reasonably the truths of the Christian faith from scripture, from evidence, all these different areas that apologetics draw from. But if your inward life and and that will necessarily spill out to your outward life, if that is rotten, then that apologetic almost doesn't really mean much. Um, you know, and that's, what's hard is that we want to, on one level, affirm, uh, the fact that God operates, he can draw a straight line with a crooked stick, right? We, we are all crooked sticks. Um, but we also have to recognize that, that the, the sinfulness in our lives, if, if we do not strive and seek after holiness, that that will have effects on our, our testimony and our ministry and our evangelism. And, And I think that's a major takeaway that we all have to have is, is that, we can't just um, we can't just put on a, a, a pretty face in public. We can't just um, speak good words. We have to actually match that and pair that with a clean conscience, a good conscience, because that's where the power of our apologetic actually comes from, is from the clean conscience we have because we truly are Christ and the Holy Spirit dwells within us and righteousness flows out from that. Yeah, this is going to kind of like uh, mess with the tone of what we're talking about here, but I always think about this lyric from Reliant K, the pop Christian punk band of yesteryear. They have a lyric, I think it's in the first album, which says, confidence is innocence. And this idea that, I think what you're getting after here is like, when when you and I talk about this pursuit of piety, this pursuit of holiness, of course, we're not talking about some kind of meritorious behavior whereby we earn the good grace of God. What we're speaking about is a desire, not of piety for its own sake, but for righteousness, that piety is the means by which we embark in righteous living because we have been saved to be righteous, not because we need the righteousness to be saved. And so it brings into question all of the things that you've just said here. And once again, you have like, I think, adeptly set up my second quotation, which I'd like to bring forward if you don't mind. And there's some circling here that's interesting for me. So by way of disclosure, I attend a Christian and Missionary Alliance church. The Christian and Missionary Alliance was the same denomination to which Ravi belonged. He started his career in ministry there. He was also prominent at NIAC, the Bible college there, which is a CMA-affiliated college. 
And they, what they did is under their own purview of government, they licensed him and also gave him the designation as a reverend, and both of which have been revoked in a statement that you can read on their website. And so what's interesting is I was reminded in processing this, knowing that we were going to talk about it, of another quotation by another gentleman who has upheld in the CMA denomination as a particularly adept or insightful individual, and that's A.W. Tozer, who was a great preacher and a theologian in his own right. And by every estimation on my part, way more reformed than most people give him credit for. But <laughs> I want to read something that's from his book, many may have read, called The Pursuit of God. And this ties into the fact that I think I want to be careful. What we're saying here, what I'm saying, I don't want to put words in your mouth, is that in some way, the legacy of Ravi Zacharias that goes forward with proclaiming the gospel is real and sound, but it's sound because it's definitely possible that the Holy Spirit used a lot of what he said right. to change people's lives and move them into a space of regeneration. And so we don't discount that. And yet, at the same time, there's no way we can get even close to condoning this, condoning this behavior because in so much as I understand what's been written so far, even from the direct report, what we see is a willingness, a volition to commit this sin in perpetuity and to hide it with reckless abandon. And this is the thing that should give us great pause to say, is it possible that somebody could just know everything, almost know too much, and get up in front of a crowd and say the right things, even preach the gospel, even as, you know, Jesus himself says, what is it, or sorry, Paul says, what does it matter to me whether Jesus is being proclaimed, whether I can pretense or in truth, that Christ is being proclaimed, there is some value there. And yet again, at the same time, we say of that individual who is deliberately pulling away from the fruit of the Holy Spirit, that there's a problem here. It's a fundamental problem. There's so, there's so deep and great a problem of such a rich magnitude that it cannot be ignored and it should be judged appropriately. So I say all that as a setup for this quote from A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, because I actually found here are two gentlemen as part of the same denomination, and the latter, with respect to Tozer, I think diagnoses what Ravi was experiencing. And this is a warning to us all. And, and I'm not saying that God orchestrated or allowed this in his sovereign will because somehow the benefit of the lesson that we should all take away from this is greater than the abuse that he committed. I'm not trying to put on the scales right. this physical and sexual abuse that took place and say that somehow our little tiny silly conversation here is in some way a proper way of offsetting all that occurred. But I'd ask everybody to listen to these words from Tozer. What he's describing here is sin of self. Basically, how can it be that somebody in a situation like this, with all the right theology for the most part, with all the understanding of, quote unquote, the gospel message, could in some way find themselves diluted in the sin of self, which manifests itself in so many ways, including this type of abuse? Here's what he writes, and I quote, One should suppose that proper instruction in the doctrines of man's depravity and the necessity for justification through the righteousness of Christ alone would deliver us from the power of the self-sins, but it does not work that way. Self can live unrebuked at the very altar. It can watch the bleeding victim die and not be in the least affected by what it sees. It can fight for the faith of the reformers and preach eloquently the creed of salvation by grace and gain strength by its efforts. To tell the truth, it seems actually to feed upon orthodoxy and is more at home in the Bible conference than in the tavern. Our very state of longing after God 
may afford it an excellent condition under which to thrive and grow, end quote. So what he's saying there, obviously, is this sense that we all need to be mindful of that. And I've, I've really been wrestling with this in light of what we're talking about, is it's almost possible that your mind can be so grasped with these truths, so to speak, in just a purely way, a pure way of giving like intellectual assent or crafting clever arguments, that that actually creates a petri dish for which the sin of self to grow in profound ways. And we all need to be aware of that. It should, yeah. in spiritual terms, like scare the pants off of us, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think, um, I, I don't know actually where you stand on this. So this will be interesting. Well, let's do it. I actually think there are a lot of people out there who I think in almost a good, a good motivated reason to try to be humble and to, to recognize their own depravity are saying things like, well, we're all sinners, you know, like we're all sinners or, or, or they'll throw out the platitude like, well, they're there, but for the grace of God, go I. And, and I'm not, I'm not trying to like disregard or disagree with that. There is a reality that we're all, we're all depraved prior to, um, coming to Christ. And even after coming to Christ, um, th the corruption of sin remains. So there, there's no sin that any of us are above, right? On a certain level. But I also think that there's a level where we sort of um, unintentionally disregard the gravity of what's going on when we make a statement like that, right? I mentioned this to you the other day when we were talking about this, and it almost feels weird to say this, but on one level, you know, you mentioned Tulian Tavidian, or or let's even take it out of, out of the sexual abuse and sexual sin realm, and talk about Mark Driscoll or some other you know pastor who's who's fallen from from that. On one level, something like Tulian's affairs, um, I don't know exactly how many there were. There was at least two that were publicly disclosed. There may have been more. There may not. I don't know. But on one level, those those were from what it seems from the available information that he shared that those who he engaged in, in affairs with those were, were sins of passion, right? They were sins which happened in a moment and, and got out of control. And, and it's not to say there weren't calculated elements of it. Obviously there were, um, but, but on one level that's almost understandable to fall, fall into a sin and then, and then get stuck in that sin and, you know, in positive terms, get, get yourself out of that or be brought out of that, however you want to frame that. What we're talking about with, with Ravi is a totally different animal, though, I think. It, it probably started out that way. I think if we're being honest, most most sins start out as, um, you know, indiscretions that that um, we we know are wrong and we, we don't necessarily do them consciously. We, we fall into them. We, we fail in a moment of temptation, however that happens. But we're talking about a decades-long um, premeditated lifestyle of sin, right? The, the kinds of things that had to take place in order for for this to be reality go way beyond, you know, hiding hiding where you're going for the weekend from your wife because you're having an affair. These are um, obtaining legal permission for people to enter the country kinds of things. These are renting hotels and apartments for years at a time in other countries. So we're talking about a life or, or a decades long pattern of habitual sin. And on one level, yes, it's true. None of us are above falling into grave lifelong sin. There's no person on, on earth or who's ever lived apart from Jesus who is above that, who is, is beyond that. 
But at the same time, most of us never will do that. And even even most non-Christians recognize the, the utter evil and wickedness of that kind of life and would, would balk at that and would, would re- refute that. They, they would recognize that that's wrong. And so I want to I want to make sure we sort of say that or I shouldn't say we again. I want to make sure I say that. I think that when when well-meaning Christians say things like, well, every saint stumbles or every sinner is, you know, every person is a sinner. Or I, I could I could be Rabbi Zacharias. I don't actually think that that's true in a, in a real sense. Um, like I said, we, we all could fall into grave sin. We all are, are we all could be terrible sinners. But by God's grace, most of us are not. And I think that's where the where the line needs to be drawn. And this is where maybe I'm maybe I'm answering my own question in real time about how I need to think about and reflect about Ravi's status as a Christian is God does allow his saints to fall into grave sin. He does that. That's it's biblical. It's confessional. That That's just a reality is that he, he does at times for his own purposes, allow us to fall into grave sin. And the fact that a person dies in those grave sins does not necessarily indicate that they are unsaved. But all of that said, I think I think the other element we have to recognize is that God calls us to make assessments uh, of whether a person is or is not in the faith, right? That That's just a basic element of being a Christian is being able to recognize other Christians. And, and we do that based on visible categories, right? I... I I might look at a person's life and say, well, they, they've made a, they've made a credible profession of faith. They care for their wife in a way that, that reflects how Christ cares for the church. They're regularly attending and passionate about, about being involved in, in the ministry of, of the gospel. I might look at all those things uh, and make those assessments, but that's based on visible categories. What we have now in terms of visible categories is is not a pretty picture. It's not an encouraging picture, and I don't think it's an optimistic picture. And so I think I think we have to be nuanced and careful in how we talk about that, especially because there are non-Christians watching the church. There are people trying to understand. And th- this, in a lot of ways, I don't want to take us on too much of a side trail on this, but this is this is the same frustration you and I have expressed in all sorts of arenas over the last year, right? About about the church, about how we react to the government and coronavirus, about masking, all of these things. The world is watching us. And and honestly, if I'm looking at a somber assessment of the church, it, it doesn't look great. We, we're not looking great in the eyes of the world. And we shouldn't do what we do in order to look great in the eyes of the world. But as this says in in this passage in Peter, right? We are to we are to make our defense in gentleness and respect, right? So there's a conduct element to how we present ourselves to the world that is not optional. And so I, I think we have to look at this and we have to take it as a cautionary tale, right? I I um, have mentioned in private and and I'll I suppose I'll mention it in public here now. Uh, part of the reason I'm not involved on social media anymore is because I looked at what happened in Geneva Commons with Michael Spangler and Amy Bird and all of the stuff around that, and it spooked me. I, I, I am self-aware enough by God's grace that I recognize that I I probably at times were just like a hairbreadth away from from saying and doing things that would put me in that same spot and would, would put me in that same place to be inappropriate and, and abusive to people online. I'm sure there were times that I crossed that line. I mean, we all cross those lines. But I think we have to look at this and, and take a somber assessment of now, like, how do we as Christians think about that? And this is what Tozer's getting at, right? Is that 
just because we are passionate about learning about theology or even passionate about preaching the gospel does not necessarily mean that there has been an inward transformation in our lives. Simon Magus ostensibly was passionate about the gospel, right? He was passionate about the Holy Spirit and he was passionate about the church. And, and it, the scripture even says he believed, but, but he's also like the, the archetypal example of the first heretic that the church looks at. So I think this is just a somber moment for us to kind of like reflect on this and reflect on our own lives without also using that as a way to sort of excuse or diminish the gravity and the, the I, I keep on saying it and, and there's almost like a gut reaction when I say it where I'm like almost uncomfortable with it, but the evil and the wickedness of these acts and of this life that he lived, we should not shy away from that and we should not diminish that, but we have to also maintain the balance of recognizing that it is by God's grace that we have been preserved from that. It's nothing that I, I have not done. It, it's not my power that's kept me from it. And for whatever reason, God has chose, God chose not to preserve Ravi from that. I, I don't know what God's reasons are. Um, and I don't want to, I don't want to throw out the Christian platitudes, like you said, of well, everything happens for a reason. Like we all affirm that we affirm that that's true, but it's not, it's not always helpful. And, and it doesn't really have any explanatory power in a situation like this. So I, I, that was kind of rambling. I'm sorry. I'm still processing this in, in real time. And it, it's, it's a lot more, I mentioned this before. It's a lot more of a struggle, a lot more difficult for me to think about these things than I, I would have expected it to be. It's not just that we as well-intentioned or knowledgeable Christians can, let's say, hide some of our personal sin behind this wall of being able to be articulate about the gospel. What scares me more is what Tozer really identifies that it's possible that actually being in the place of having that knowledge can actually cause that sin to increase. Yeah. And so I think the warning here is that it's always a matter of the heart. And this is the unfortunate thing. I'm about to quote Ravi to explain this very point. He was the man that said, intent precedes content. Yeah. I mean, here was again, him coming forward and saying, what matters most is what God has done in the heart, as you said, in the private life. That that is the fundamental understanding of the effectiveness of the gospel in your presentation of it. And I go back to what you aptly quoted with respect to First Peter, and I find that really the best expression of that verse, which is First Peter 3.15, I think comes from the NASB because it starts by saying, but sanctify Christ right. as Lord in your hearts. So everything that comes after that, this being able to give a defense, is directly tied or tightly coupled with your own sanctification of Christ— some will say like honor Christ or respect Christ, but sanctify is a much better word because this is upholding the holiness of God in the center of your own being. And until that happens by the power of the Holy Spirit in regeneration, and then by constant walking from that day forward in the life of the Spirit, if you separate yourself from that, then it is possible that you can convince yourself that if I speak the right words, if my ministry is impactful enough in what I say and how I organize things, then I can somehow be at peace with my conscience, even while I pursue regular habitual sin. And what Paul says is that's not the case. Right. What Peter says is this is not the case. What Matthew says is that's not the Jesus that I'm talking about. So that's what makes it so hard because what I think we're driving at is that when we look to the New Testament 
And we see Jesus say things like when, you know, like when he's in the temple and he says to the money changers, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Right. I think we so often blow by that verse and forget to process. What does it mean? That's a den of robbers. That's not like the speakeasy. That's not like the place where they go to hide out. It's where they're actually sitting in God's own place of like his collective presence. Right. They're out in the open. And even in that space, they're able to be this kind of people that take advantage of. In fact, that space has in some ways, in like an almost perverse way, been some of the very thing that has allowed them to enable or move over into that sin of self that's willing to take advantage of others yeah. under the auspice of what is spiritual. And that's so much of what we're talking about here. So there is this like really great and grave warning. And it's I like what you said, because when you say we need to judge sin, I love that Paul says, he starts by saying, if you want to judge sin, Tests first to see whether you yourself right. are in the faith, in the faith, in Christ Jesus. And so I, I think what you said is right in that the reason why many of us will not have to contend with the same level of worry or concern over this that's been committed here is, in, of course, because God in his grace has spared us from that. But I would challenge everybody, and this is where I've been challenging myself as I process this with Ravi Zacharias is I go back to the quote from Robert Murray McShay, the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. Right. And that's true. So then what we're talking about here, if that's true, is a matter of ability, willingness, and circumstance. Right. And even Dallas Willard, who again, I, I don't necessarily condone, but one of the most profound things that I've ever read from him was that when Jesus says, if you commit adultery, when you look at a woman lustfully, what he's saying to you is, you in fact have committed adultery because what you would have done is if you could get away with it and nobody would have known and you have done it, then that's, you've committed adultery. Yeah. And so I do worship God. I do praise God that he has not put me in the place of Ravi Zacharias because I, apart from God's willingness and a wonderful grace and restraining power. I'm not sure that I wouldn't have fallen into the same sin. Why? Because the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. Yeah. So we really ought to constantly be falling on our knees, worshiping God, asking him to sustain us. In fact, it is the purview and the domain of the Reformed Christian who says the perseverance of the saints is exactly this kind of thing that we're talking about, that God himself sustains and withholds and perseveres all those whom he has saved. And so, of course, when we say that, it brings us great comfort. And yet in this situation, it causes us great dismay because we're trying to evaluate what has taken place. Yeah. You know, it, it reminds me, the, the quote that we always get heat for is, you know, the Christian life is, is try harder and do better, right? And I think... You know, everybody in the Christian world is like, yeah, yeah, I love John. I love John Owen. Be be killing sin or sin will be killing you. What we don't recognize is there's an active component that we are involved right. in. And we've been very clear. Sanctification is, is something that God does to you, right? Mortification is something God does to you. But we are not absent from that process. We're not the efficient cause of it. We're, we're not we're not cooperating with God unto our own sanctification, but the fact is that the Christian life is every single day striving to become holier, right? That, that's the Christian life is to strive. Now, the, what that striving is for, what that striving accomplishes either, either actually or hypothetically is that's the question. It's not salvation. We're not sanctifying ourselves any more than we justified or regenerated ourselves or will resurrect or glorify ourselves, right? We're not saying that. 
But the fact of the matter is that God expects Christians to strive for holiness. He, he does. It's, it's a command that we ought not to ignore. And for those of us who do, um, it, it, is a, it is a grave, grave situation to be in. Um, one of, you know, I've, I've, I've publicly gone back and forth on the John Piper thing and, and all of that stuff. But one of the things coming out of that that I think is important, that, that I, think, I think people are trying to get at um, with what they say, what Piper says and what Mark Jones says, what, what Reformed Christians are trying to get at with some of this language that they use that is problematic and, and in some ways, you know, Piper's theology could even be wrong. What they're trying to get at is that holiness is not an optional feature for the Christian. It's, it's not an option for us to just be like, yeah, yeah, I, I like that justification thing, but I'm just going to take it easy and ignore the sanctification thing. And then God will take care of that after I die. Like that's, that's not a prerogative that Christians have. We don't have the option to do that. And, and I think, you know, as maybe as we kind of round this out, I think what's hard in, in all of these situations, what's difficult is we want to be charitable and we want to be honest and we want to recognize our own depravity. We want to recognize where we, where we also have failed and where we also have fallen. But I just keep coming back to this again and again is we, we can't, we can't ever excuse sin, not in our own lives, not in someone else's lives. We can't ever look at sin and go, yeah, that makes, that makes sense. Yeah, that's okay. It, it might make sense, but it's never okay. And I think that's where we stand on this. That's where I stand on this is that no matter what we say about Rabbi Zacharias or, or Tulian Davidian or, or Mark Driscoll or, you know, any of the other high profile scandalous situations that have happened over the last several years, wherever we, we land on this, where we can't land is any way that diminishes the reality of sin, any way that diminishes this in some senses, this is a testimony to the reality of depravity. This is a testimony right. to the reality of total depravity, right? It, I, don't, I don't know whether Rabbi Zacharias was a regenerate Christian. I, I don't know that. I'm not called to know that. That's way above my pay grade. But if he wasn't, then this is, a, this is an example of just total depravity in, in the rawest sense. If he was, then this is an example of how how comprehensive that depravity is that even after regeneration, even after we are sanctified in the whole man, right? To use the, the Westminster catechism language, we're sanctified in the whole man after the image of Christ and enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness. If, if he was a regenerate Christian, which he may have been, I don't know. I, I don't think we have a good reason to say that at this point. I don't think we have visible categories that justify us making that statement. But even if he was, how powerful is sin, right? Not that God can't and doesn't overcome it, but how powerful is sin that even, even in the life of a Christian, uh, even in the life of someone who is regenerate by the Holy Spirit, it still hangs on. That old man is still there. And so I, I guess what I want us to take away from this conversation and what I want us to take away from this situation as we all reflect on it is a real somber assessment of our own sinfulness, not to diminish it, not to not to put all of us on equal footing with Rabbi Zacharias. I, I think some gra some sins are graver than others, 
Um, that's, that's biblical. That's confessional. Some sins are worse than others, right? There is a gradation of severity of sin. And, and this was bad. This was, this was right up there. Uh, you know, this I've heard, I've seen comparisons to King David. Um, and I think they're actually pretty apt, especially considering how destructive Robbie's actions were in reference to, um, I think her name was Lori Thompson and her husband. Uh, that was some Uriah level strategy, right? That, that was some, that was some serious life destruction that that was being done to to pave over and to cover up Ravi's sin. Um, the the big difference is that we see the repentance in David when he when he was confronted, right? We we see him as he was you know regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Maybe before that, maybe after that. We don't know. We don't we don't know when their generation happened. Could it could be that that was his conversion moment? We don't know, but. What we see is repentance. And unfortunately, in the case of Rabbi Zacharias, when he was confronted, he had the opportunity to confess and repent. He did not do so. And so what I want us to take away from it is, is that, you know, that old Puritan adage that we should sh- keep short accounts with God. We should keep short accounts with God. But also, we should keep short accounts with people. We should be transparent about, about the places that we've we've sinned the places that we've fallen short of the standard that God has set for us. We should be outward and and open about our repentance, about our confession of sin. Because, you know, what is it? The Washington Post, the d- democracy dies in darkness. Well, sin dies in the light. And so I, I think we just should take away from this that anytime we're, we're tempted to hide our sin, anytime we're tempted to keep it hidden because out of self-preservation, that is exactly the wrong decision to make. And this is not to say, at least on my part, that because of where Ravi was placed with respect to his authority and his expertise, at least perceived or otherwise, and his influence, that it was a foregone conclusion that this type of sin would be committed. In fact, I think this is exactly the thing you're talking about. It's a call to persevere and to pursue piety for the sake of righteousness. And it means the more responsibility that we're given the more we should be turning over that kind of awareness regularly in our minds, the more resources yeah. are consumed with being focused on that kind of righteousness and how we live and how we behave and how we interact. It's all the more important. And perhaps one day, not on this episode, but another one, we can talk about whether somebody like Ravi Zacharias or these other, let's say, personalities of cult that we have in the Christian faith, reformed or otherwise, they should exist in these positions because, you know, God gives us great authority and great structure within the church. And I believe that's his way of saying, don't hurt yourself. Yeah. And also it's to prevent this kind of consequence. It's to bring about a really good and helpful and holy and godly accountability. And certainly that was lacking in this situation. But outside of that, it's exactly what you said is that, the pursuit to follow after God, the desire to follow closely after the Lord Jesus Christ is one that we have to take seriously. Because if you ask me, even my own life, we love the John Owen phrase, as you said, you know, be killing sin, but who is killing sin? And and the question, can you point to things in your last week where you were actively killing sin? You know, the way that I liken it in my own life is this past summer, because I'd injured my foot, I took up a little bit of road biking and found out that it scared the pants off of me because I had no idea what I was doing when I was out on the road <laughs> with the bike and all these cars. And what I quickly realized is, at least for me, the biking required such a greater awareness 
of everything that was happening at any given time that it was so exhausting that I almost couldn't handle it. Yeah. And yet that's what we're saying. The more that God gives us authority and impact over others in a sphere of influence, the more we need to be like that person on the road bike who's constantly aware. It's just like Luther said when he was asked about temptation and sin, where he said, I cannot prevent the bird from flying over my head, but I can prevent it from making a nest in my hair. Yeah. And that's what we need to be about under and with the strength of God through the power of his Holy Spirit. So we do need to get after this. It still is the same old lesson. Yeah. Work harder, but the effort and the strength from which it comes, the where we're drawing our source of energy and effort is not within, but is transcendent from outside. But I think until we undertake to really endeavor to make that our concern, the more likely it is that no matter where we are in life, we'll fall into these great temptations and then yeah. we'll fall into consequential sin. Yeah. Well, I don't have any great, brilliant <laughs> way for us to close the show. We've, we've commented in the past that sometimes we do these episodes that are just, they're just downers. And this is one of them. There's no, there's no happy, snappy way for us to end this show. So pray for the victims of this thing. Pray for the people yes. who've been impacted by it. Um, you know, I think pray for the board of RCIM. Um, I think that there's still a lot of investigation that needs to happen, um, and that's never pleasant. And 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 pray that they continue to be open and transparent and um, willing to allow and in some ways to pay for that investigation because I think there's more to be done. Um, and, and pray for just pray for the people who are hurting from this. Like yes, it's, like amen. we said earlier. The, the, the fact that you've been hurt by the, the fact that this happened is, does not make you a victim, right. but it doesn't change the fact that you've been hurt by the fact that this happened. So pray, pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. I think all of us uh, who have any sort of transient awareness of what's going on in the broader Christian world knows about people in the Christian world like Rabbi Zacharias who are big figures. And so this has a ripple effect on all of us. So um, with all of that said, you know, just, just pray, get after it, people. Like, let's right. get after, let's get after the work of, of becoming holy. And I know that that feels and sounds weird to say, but, but that really is the call is yes. to, you're made holy by Christ to go out and be holy. And that's, that's the point it is you're not made holy to, to be unholy. You're made holy to be holy. So let's get right. after it and let's do that. Yeah. And sometimes we just fail to appreciate that until something like this happens. And we think, yeah. oh my goodness, it not only does it matter, of course matters at this place where somebody has a profound influence, where there's some notoriety, but honestly, everybody has some level of notoriety that God has given right. them. Yeah. And, and so like, this is tremendously important. So I think we, and also I want to say we do this together. I mean, that's part of the reason why we have these conversations. It's not like we relish this. And obviously after we recorded, what was it, the last episode? You and I, I think, stayed online and spoke yeah. for maybe an hour yeah. about this very thing. And we covered lots of ground, including some of the stuff we haven't talked about today, because you and I were processing this. So process this together. And if there's any kind of small light that I can shed at the end of this episode, I want to thank those who continue to be a part of this conversation, to send us voicemails, who to support what we're doing here by helping to cover our incidental expenses. And we've had just yet this past week, another lovely sister, Sister Michelle, join us through Patreon to support regularly, financially, what's going on here. And again, we're, I'm just so grateful. Like yeah. we, It's like we, we, we don't advertise this thing. You and I talk about this. We're not after it to try to garner some kind of financial support. 
we're just so thankful for those that help us to cover these expenses because those, those expenses are real. Right. And so again, if you're interested after your first commitment to your church, you can go to reformbrotherhood.com in the upper, upper right-hand corner. There's a little link that will guide you in some things you can do with joining the brotherhood. We're just happy to have anybody join us. But the clarion call that we're giving is as much like I'm giving it to you as I'm giving it to myself as I'm giving it to everybody who's listening to us. And that is to really get after the work of God, to be the people of God. Yeah. And that certainly starts internally with this commitment to holiness and piety resulting in righteousness for the sake of Christ and by the power of his sacrifice. Yeah. Amen. Well, let's leave it there, Jesse. Until next week, when we come back together, honor everyone. <laughs> Love the brotherhood. Oh.